but each country will have a different set of requirements for evaluation. And so we find that our product that's a biologic in the US uh, is made of human tissue. In some countries, it may be regulated as human tissue. In some countries, it may be regulated as a device. And in other countries, it'll be regulated as medicinal or a, uh, a biologic. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the MedTech Podcast. You join me, your host, Karadeep Singh Badwell. Under this episode, I have President, CEO, and Chairman of the Board at Oxygen, a regenerative medicine company developing a pipeline of products to address peripheral nerve damage. Karen has a diverse range of experiences under her belt, from working for large corporations in manufacturing and marketing to running her own successful consulting firm. She's also a passionate advocate for changes in healthcare, using technology to make a real difference in the lives of patients. Get ready to unravel the secrets of your body's wires as we dive into the fascinating world of nerves in this episode. From muscle movement to breathing and beyond, nerves are responsible for multiple functions that keep us going. But what happens when nerve damage goes undiagnosed? We'll explore the outcomes for patients and the need for education for both patients and physicians in this space. Plus, we'll take a closer look at the regulatory pathway for biological products and give you the inside scoop on the healthcare scene in sunny Florida. Welcome to the show, Karen. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. It's nice to talk to you today. It's a pleasure having you on. So, Karen, what exactly is peripheral nerve damage for the listeners? Yeah, a lot of people don't even think about their peripheral nerves, yet they affect the patient and, and all of the function that we all do every day. Uh, I like to think of nerves as the wires of your body. So they're what carry signals from your brain to tell your muscles to move, to tell you to breathe, uh, all of the uh, responses that you have in, in your body uh, are carried on those signals. And they also give feedback back to the brain. So that's what carries the signals that tell you te- temperature or vibration or light touch uh, or pain. All of those are signals that are carried on nerves. And when nerves are damaged, uh, you can lose that function depending on the level of damage. So if the nerve is completely cut, Again, it's like cutting a wire. It no longer carries electricity. Your TV won't operate if you cut the power cord. Um, The same thing happens with nerves. So you might have paralysis or loss of function. You might have numbness in that area. Another complication that can happen when nerves are cut is that they can form a very painful um, nerve tangle of little fibers called a neuroma. And that can send uh, really aberrant signals back to the brain that your brain interprets as chronic pain. So some, not all, but some chronic pain sufferers are really suffering because there's damage to the nerve. And so those are all the types of things that we try and think about and help patients improve their quality of life. So being the president and CEO of Axogen, what is Axogen and how did the idea come to fruition? Well, uh, Axigen has been around now for 20 years. Um, I'm actually not the founder. It was founded out of some interesting technology that came out of the University of Florida and the University of Texas in Austin, uh, really as an offshoot of spinal cord research. And so they were looking at spinal cord research and along the way, both institutions started to think about peripheral nerves and is there something we could do in the peripheral nervous system in the interim while spinal cord research is is also going on. And spinal cord, of course, is much, much more complex 
than, uh, than peripheral nerve damages. Uh, so they started these experiments and that was what was the genesis of the idea of what is now the company Axigen. Uh, now I joined the company in 2006, so I've been here for a while. At that point, Axigen was a, a kind of a lab experiment on our flagship product uh, for advanced nerve graft. And we were doing uh, preclinical testing and uh, we've grown now to be a company that really focuses on multiple types of injuries to nerve. We have uh, four commercial products and a number of things in our pipeline as we continue to help surgeons solve. Uh, really, today we focus on sort of three conceptual issues. Uh, when a nerve is cut, like I described earlier, how do you restore that function of the nerve? Uh, we help surgeons when a nerve has pressure or compression on it. Um, that's uh, that alters the signal conduction. So the nerve is still intact, but uh, an example that you might be aware of is carpal tunnel syndrome, where there's pressure on the nerve and you end up with numbness and tingling and weakness in, in your thumb and first two fingers. But that same idea is true on any nerve. And then the last one is uh, when nerves are terminated or ended uh, to prevent that painful tangle of nerve fibers that I talked about. Uh, and, and a great example of that is phantom limb pain. So when an amputee says my foot hurts, but they don't have a foot, uh, why is that? Well, that's because those aberrant signals are forming and causing uh, those signals back to the brain saying it hurts. So following on from that, what are the possible outcomes for patients if a nerve is damaged, but is left undiagnosed or possibly untreated? Well, there's a a range of things that can happen. Um, it depends on the extent of the damage. Uh, a very minor sort of a bruise to a nerve uh, very often will heal. So you might have temporary paralysis uh, or even a loss of sensation. So think on it, if you sleep on your arm in a funny way, and you know how you get that tingling in your fingers and you can barely feel anything, well, that's an example of a temporary situation where the nerve fibers will recover. There was a short-term compression, but at this point, you want to make sure you just allow uh, the nerve to just go back to its normal status because there's nothing that's permanent that's going to change that. Uh, all the way to things that affected in surgery where nerves are very often cut in trying to get to the primary purpose of the surgery um, or in uh, traumatic injuries where nerves might be part of the overall trauma. Uh, when you have the more permanent injuries, like in trauma or surgery, uh, it would be that loss of function. So you, again, from a muscle standpoint, it might be some paralysis or muscle weakness. Um, it might be a limited range of motion. Uh, you will also often see atrophy of the muscles. Muscles that are not used start to degrade and go away. And so over time, that's not something that happens overnight, but over time you would start to see atrophy of that muscle. Uh, if it's a sensory nerve, then you'll have areas that you get that pins and needles sense or maybe no sensation at all. Um, you, you won't be able to feel anything. And of course, um, ultimately, you may also end up with pain from those damaged nerve fibers that short out and send those bad signals back to the brain. So Karen, my question for you, since starting in this industry, what have you learned about the human body or nerves in general that would you say is not common knowledge? Um, I Well, I think nerves in general are underappreciated as to how much impact they can have on a patient's quality of life. Um, and in particular, that the fact that uh, chronic pain can be caused by this physical anomaly in a nerve is 
in my opinion, probably vastly underdiagnosed. And, uh, and those are patients that end up in pain clinics and, and struggling uh, really for a good quality of life. So, so what I've been surprised about is how often nerves are injured uh, and how little they're talked about as part of the overall uh, care and quality of care for patients. So we're hoping to change that, raising the awareness. Um, and a great example, if I could give one, is uh, as much as I've worked in healthcare, I did not know in the traditional methods of breast reconstruction when a woman has a mastectomy uh, that they've never done anything with the nerves. And so uh, while the woman may have the look of a normal breast following a breast reconstruction, for her as the patient, she doesn't have the, the same sensation or even, even in some cases any sensation in the reconstructed breast. And what we hear from women is, uh, you know, that's not a sense of normalcy. You want to return to normalcy after this very serious incident with cancer uh, or a prophylactic mastectomy to prevent cancer. And uh, not being able to hug your children and feel them is not normal. And so we want to help women return back to normalcy with simply hooking up the nerves as a part of that reconstruction. So what is the current standard of care for nerve repair? And what would you say are the limitations of the current approaches? Well, when a nerve is transected, uh, if they can bring the nerve ends directly together without tension, it can be done with just sutures. Uh, but nerves are a little bit unique in that they don't heal well under tension. In fact, they dramatically uh, fall off in regenerative capability uh, once there is any tension on the nerve. So if there's any loss of segment of the nerve, uh, then there's going to need to be done, something done to bridge that gap. And that's very common, again, in tumors and reconstructions in traumatic injuries, that there would be some sort of loss of segment. Uh, we also see that the, so if I just start with the suture side, um, sutures are what have been done for years. Um, they cause, um, well, the sutures are tiny. Nerves are also really tiny. So relative to the nerves, the sutures are large and can cause damage at the point that the, that the uh, repair is done. And so we teach a connector-assisted repair that brings the two nerve ends together with our AxiGuard connector. Is, uh, think of it as a, a duct tape for a nerve. I don't know any other way to describe it without seeing it, but it's a way to hold the nerves together um, not overly tension, so you detension the coaptation and don't do the damage of the sutures with that with that connector assisted repair. When there is a gap, uh, the gold standard is actually taking a nerve from somewhere else in your body, creating a permanent deficit in one part of your body to try and fix something that's more important to you. Usually the nerve they take is a nerve that gives you sensation for your foot. It's called the sural nerve and it runs up the back of the leg. Uh, you would have a long incision. They actually usually make an incision from just below the knee to just above the ankle to remove this uh, nerve. Uh, and you would have permanent deficit on the top and side of your foot. Plus, you know, you would have the injury of the scar up the back of your leg and any complications that might come of that. But if that's going to allow you to move your hand, you know, generally patients in the past have said, well, that's more important to me than sensation in my foot. And with our off-the-shelf solution with advanced nerve graft today, uh, you would be able to do that same repair. Uh, you would not have to take something from the patient's own body. You wouldn't have to have the deficit caused by that and get um, the same clinical outcomes, uh, again, without that downside morbidity and, uh, and the cost of the added surgery time. 
So, Kara, my question to you, what exactly brought you to this particular role? What is your background and how exactly did you end up where you are today? Well, that's a great question. I have a real passion around changing healthcare and advancing technology to, to really make quality of life and uh, for better for patients. And I spent uh, a number of years at Johnson & Johnson in uh, surgical and wound care products, really uh, seeing opportunities to advance healthcare through a larger company. But I really wanted to be more on the innovation side. So at uh, one point, a number of years ago, I left. Um, I, I had an interest in nerve repair from work I had done uh, in, my, in my prior time at J&J. And uh, early on, I was introduced to Axigen. So I was actually the sixth employee of Axigen when they were predominantly a science team. And I came in and have uh, run the company. Uh, I've been CEO since 2010. So in terms of what you do in terms of everyday life, what would you say is that is most commonly under, misunderstood when it comes to this sort of line of work that you're in? Uh, in terms of, if I can ask a clarifying question, in terms of nerve repair, um, what is Correct. most misunderstood? Um, you know, I think uh, that there is a lack of understanding of the impact that nerve injuries actually have on patients. Um, it's not something that surgeons have often asked about. And uh, I've been in lots of different types of surgery. I've uh, observed many surgeries and nerves kind of are the little shiny white things that are in the way of what you're trying to get to. And so they are often ablated or cut in trying to uh, physically access, for example, a joint um, or a hernia or uh, you know other conditions that need to have a, a treatment. Uh, the problem is when they're ignored that they do cause uh, complications for the patient. So many of the morbidities of procedures are actually nerve injuries. And uh, I can rattle off a whole lot of them. <laughs> if you think about uh, tumors, uh, a prostatectomy, when a man has prostate cancer, the erectile dysfunction and incontinence associated with that procedure are not because you had prostate cancer there because nerves are damaged in removing the prostate. Uh, facial paralysis, when a patient has a uh, uh, a paralysis or a sagging of part of a face, either due to a tumor or other causes, are all nerve injuries. Uh, people who have chronic dry eye, uh, that is actually because signaling in most cases is lost to the cornea to cause your eye to tear. Uh, and there are people experimenting today on how to correct that with a surgical procedure that will allow that signaling to restore in it and you can go back to tearing so you don't ulcerate and you know, ultimately go blind. Um, so that the ways that nerves impact patients are really underappreciated. And we're just super excited to continue to advance this science and help patients to restore that function. So following on from that, you know, often physicians and patients need education on these sort of things. What sort of initiatives do you have at Oxygen to help physicians and patients understand the diagnosis and also the treatment of nerve repair? Yeah, we are very active in that. We find uh, that often we have to raise awareness of the problem, uh, both with patients and with clinicians for them to then think through what are the solutions. And so the breast cancer uh, opportunity is one that I, I mentioned earlier. 
Uh, we have a program called Resensation that we have worked extensively on developing and teaching a technique for neurotization of the breast during the reconstruction. Uh, we have active education programs with surgeons to make sure that the techniques uh, are consistent. Um, so we do uh, surgical education uh, with a, a, a pretty strong faculty group to continue to advance that, that knowledge. Uh, we also work on the patient side. So we have a, a, a website in that case, it's an educational website for patients to understand first questions to ask their surgeon uh, is to even decide for themselves. There are many decisions you have to make when you have breast cancer. Uh, obviously everyone's first goal is to save their life but then they have secondary goals about what's important to them following the uh, removal of the cancer and the treatment of the cancer. And so we list questions for a patient to consider and patients can print that down and actually have that knowledgeable conversation with their surgeon and make their own decisions as advocates uh, for their own healthcare. Uh, we're starting the same type of work uh, with Rethink Pain uh, for those patients who have chronic pain and are trying to understand what is their care pathway, what are options for them to get surgery for uh, chronic pain, and, and do they maybe have a neuroma and need to see a pain surgeon to get that neuroma removed, which is that the neuroma is that tangle of nerve fibers that I talked about. Uh, we also use social media to help raise awareness. Uh, women, for example, in breast cancer are, are at a point in time when they're trying to make a decision about what their care pathway will be. And so uh, we try and make sure that we have information available to them that will pop up as they start to search uh, for certain keywords and also to have social media that will help inform both the, the people who are affected by the disease, but also their loved ones who are interested in trying to help their, their uh, loved one to have a better quality of life. So we really work on both ends of the spectrum in providing uh, surgeon education. Um, uh, I guess I should also mention we train in the United States about three quarters of all uh, fellows each year in uh, both hand and microsurgery, uh, who are the predominant ones who work in nerve repair uh, through our education program so that they get a, a, a good learning content on nerve repair so that we're trying to help train that next generation of surgeons. Uh, to be much more knowledgeable about both the, the best practices and techniques in nerve repair and the opportunity to help their patients. So, Karen, you went through a biologicals license application for the FDA. As someone is from a medical device background, as many of my listeners are, what exactly does this process involve and what does it mean? Yeah, um, a, a BLA is... Uh, much more involved than a typical medical device process. Um, we have um, we have an array of regenerative medicine products and, and regenerative medicine products uh, have a very tricky regulatory back uh, pathway to, with some decision points around what's the right approach to bring them uh, to market. And that those regulatory processes uh, may be different in different countries. So I'm gonna talk about the US process, uh, but each country will have a different set of requirements for evaluation. And so we find that our product that's a biologic in the US uh, is made of human tissue. In some countries, it may be regulated as human tissue. In some countries, it may be regulated as a device. And in other countries, it'll be regulated as a medicinal or a, uh, a biologic. And so it is a country by country process that you have to think about the, uh, the regulatory pathway. Uh, for 
our advanced nerve graft. Uh, advanced nerve graft is human nerve that has been decellularized. So it removes any cells and cellular debris and maintains an active protein array that helps to guide uh, regeneration of both the nerve fibers as they are uh, as they're growing and, and uh, repairing to the distal target. Uh, it's biologically active in that it provides guidance to those nerve fibers. It revascularizes and recruits the cells from the patient's own body to become recellularized. And the easy way to think about it is it's a three-dimensional blueprint that tells the nerve fibers where to go uh, and tells the body to build a nerve in that location. Um, that is why it's the biological activity of it is why it's regulated in the U.S. as a biologic. Um, a biologic typically is going to have um, some free parts to an application. It's going to have uh, CMC as chemicals manufacturing and control. So there's a lot more work in the manufacturing side and the characterization of the biologic than you would do with a typical medical device. There'll be a, a non-clinical portion, which will be your benchtop and, uh, and any preclinical testing that you would do in an animal model. And then ultimately, from a human clinical standpoint, you would typically do a phase one, a phase two, so their safety dosing, and a phase three to show the performance of the biologic. And very often, you'll run multiple phase three studies to get a broader indication. So it's, it's quite a bit of uh, development work that you would typically do in, uh, in, in bringing a biologic to market. Having said all of that, we've done a slightly different path. So that's the normal way. Um, we brought Avance into the marketplace under one set of regulations as a human tissue product. And the FDA has changed the regulations. Uh, we are, in fact, the first transition product going from an HCTP, that's the human uh, cells and tissue products, uh, to a biologic pathway. Um, we had done quite a bit of development work, even as an HCTP, just given the very technical nature of nerve repair and the questions that we knew surgeons would ask. So we had done most of the CMC work and preclinical work well ahead of the biologics. We had some clinical data as well. So we were exempted from needing to do a phase one or phase two study and have completed our phase three study and had a data readout last year, which we were very happy to meet the primary endpoint. So we're actually not quite at the end yet. We'll submit our BLA application uh, at the end of this coming year, or excuse me, at the end of this year, the year that we're in, and, uh, and look forward to then being fully a biologic and not in a transition biologic. So you've mentioned females in healthcare, which in my opinion and experience are often sadly overlooked. For the female listeners today, what would you say are the areas of healthcare that they should look into in terms of making an impact? Well, being a female in healthcare, um, I would actually say that that voice needs to be raised in all areas of healthcare. Uh, there's quite a bit of research that shows that the female of a household makes about 70% of the family's decisions in healthcare. And, uh, and yet very often uh, the female voice is underrepresented uh, both on the surgical side, in the healthcare administration side of hospitals, and in the medical device and biologics and pharmaceutical companies. And so we don't have a full voice of that, of that customer who's the decision-making body. And I think it really helps to make sure that it's a well-rounded voice. 
the breast application that I talked about before is a, is a great example of that. Breast cancer actually runs in my family. I have family members who've had breast cancer. And so I became aware of the problems of a woman who's had a reconstruction and has numb breasts. But when we went and interviewed surgeons, we found that male surgeons very often did not discuss sensation with their female patients. It was a topic the patients were uncomfortable bringing up, and the surgeons didn't even think about it from their perspective as, a, as an issue. But what interestingly we found is female surgeons all knew that numb breasts were a problem for their patients. And so it just shows that gender dynamic does not allow us to fully explore the opportunities to, to improve healthcare uh, without having uh, a female voice for, for a problem to be fully articulated. So I, I, I think that there's great opportunities for women to con uh, continue to expand their influence and impact in healthcare uh, and continue to represent that voice of the customer. As someone who's based in Florida, what would you say the healthcare scene is like there? You know, what are the initiatives going on in that area? Well, F Florida has a, uh, so yes, we're a Tampa-based company. Um, Florida has a lot of initiatives in healthcare. Um, we have a, a, a strong set of uh, research institutions here in the state. And uh, for those who are doing clinical studies, we also have a patient population that as you get into uh, older patients, there's a more concentrated patient population in parts of Florida that can make it a great place to do clinical research. <laughs> and so, uh, so I think both on the, on the discovery side and research side at the universities like the University of Florida, where we originated out of, uh, as well as on the clinical side, there's a great opportunity to continue to expand healthcare and a lot of emphasis on it on the clinical side. Uh, Tampa in particular is interested in bringing in biotech and medtech companies into the area and has been very uh, supportive. We recently moved to Tampa, uh, but they've been very supportive of trying to bring in more healthcare companies to this area. So they're uh, a, a supportive community to try and build out infrastructure and resources to support these, these medtech biotech companies. So what are your plans for Oxygen? Do you plan on releasing new products or going into national markets? Oh, well, uh, both. Um, we just think there's a tremendous amount of innovation that can continue to happen in nerve repair. We think we've got some great solutions for some of the problems, but we don't have solutions for all the problems, and we see opportunities to make those solutions even better. So we have an active pipeline of uh, innovation that we're working on from a product standpoint. And we also see clinical applications where we can expand the use of our existing products into new applications. Today, we focus on trauma. Uh, breast neurotization, uh, facial and uh, oral maxillofacial reconstructions uh, as, uh, as areas of focus, but we're moving into the surgical treatment of pain, which we think is, as I mentioned, a tremendous opportunity to help patients. Uh, we're starting to uh, explore some of those things in corneal neurotization, the, the risk of blindness that I talked about, uh, and many other applications. In fact, there's so many, we have to prioritize them. We can't work on all of them at once. Um, having said all that, it's also a global problem. We can't only solve problems here in the U.S. And so we have started to do regulatory submissions in selected countries around the world. Uh, we have both uh, some independent sales uh, teams in selected countries, and we've started to expand a direct team in Germany so that we can start to build out the presence and the education that we provide on a global basis. If we could go back in time, what would you tell your younger self? 
uh, that everything will take longer than I think it will, and it'll take more money than I think it will. <laughs> so that's uh, probably true on all innovations. When uh, I moved to Florida to join Oxygen, I told my husband it would be five years tops. Um, it's been uh, more like sixteen. Uh, so it's been uh, it's been a fun run here, but uh, but everything takes longer than you think it will. Um, on the other hand, uh, when I started uh, as my younger self working in Oxygen, um, I don't think we fully understood how big the opportunities were. And the more we know, the more we see is opportunity in front of us. So it's also well, it takes longer. You're also seeing some great opportunities to continue to expand. So following on from that, if we can talk to somebody who maybe is at the start of their careers, maybe is a student and wants to go into business like yours, what advice would you give to them? Put as many tools on your tool belt as you can, as fast as you can. So say yes to getting lots of experiences and be willing to be put in uncomfortable situations because that's the way you learn. Uh, so you won't know everything when you start. Uh, but you are going to want to try and lean in and get as many opportunities as you can. So what would you say were some of the early mistakes that you made in your career that if you could go back in time and change, what would they be? Um, I think, I don't think I have had what I thought were mistakes. Um, but there are times I think I could have been bolder and moved faster. Um, I've always enjoyed, I've always been very curious and wanted to learn. And I wanted from a career standpoint to learn a, a generalist pathway. And so I'm an engineer, undergrad, MBA from Kellogg. And, uh, and so I had both the technical and the marketing background. And so I have run a manufacturing plant. I have um, worked in sales. I worked in marketing. I uh, did new business development, which is acquiring companies and businesses uh, into a, a larger entity. I ran an R&D group. Um, I ran a worldwide business. I, I got a very nice broad background in a lot of different functional areas. And it all came together then in, in starting and running a smaller business and building it up. Um, to be able to, to have the knowledge that I have today. So I don't think there were mistakes. The only thing I might've said to my younger self would have been, you don't have to learn everything. You just have to understand what the issues are so that you can move a little faster. Um, but I, yeah, I've enjoyed everything that I've done. So it, there's not really problems along the way. Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. What one piece of advice would you be leaving the listeners with today? See a nerve specialist quickly if you think you have a nerve injury uh, and be proactive about it um, because uh, oftentimes these patients get told to wait and there is a window of time to get your nerves repaired. And so unfortunately, many patients end up being told to wait past the time period where the problem can be fixed. Thank you very much for your time, Karen. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 43 of the MedTech Podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. If you wish to learn more about Karen, you can connect with her on LinkedIn or visit a company website, the links of which are provided in the description. If there are any particular topics or guests you'd like for me to have on the show in future, then feel free to reach out.